Welcome back to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I'm speaking with the co-directors of the Colgate Center for Freedom and Western Civilization, Professor of Political Science Robert Kranek and Associate Professor of Art and Art History and Russian and Eurasian Studies, and the Director of Medieval and Renaissance Studies, Carolyn Guile. Professor Kranek specializes in classical and medieval political philosophy, modern political philosophy, and American political theory. His published books include History and Modernity in the Thought of Thomas Hobbes, published by Cornell Press, Christian Faith and Modern Democracy, published by Notre Dame Press, In Defense of Human Dignity, edited with Glenn Tinder, Notre Dame Press, and Reason, Faith, and Politics, edited with Arthur M. Meltzer, uh, that was in Lexington Press in 2008, and in 2006, he received the Colgate Alumni Corporation Distinguished Teaching Award. Professor Kranak earned his bachelor's degree from Cornell University and his PhD from Harvard University. Professor Guile teaches early modern European art and architecture in the Department of Art and Art History, and she is the co-director for the Center for Freedom and Western Civilization. Professor Guile is the author of Remarks on Architecture, The Vitruvian Tradition in Enlightenment Poland, published by Pennsylvania State University Press. She earned her bachelor's degree from the University of California, Berkeley, and her master's and PhD from Princeton University. Professor Guile and Professor Kranak, welcome to 13. Thank you very much for having us, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dan, for giving us the opportunity to explain our center. Absolutely. Uh, so... That's a good way to start. Uh, Let's explain the center. So, uh, Bob, can you tell us what the Center for Freedom and Western Civilization is? So it was an institute that was created in 2004 in order to promote the ideals of freedom and Western civilization. But also we think of it as an institute that promotes the intellectual diversity and balanced discussion of issues on campus during a period in which People feel that intellectual diversity and balanced discussion is somewhat imperiled. I think we also think of ourselves as defending the ideals of academic freedom, freedom of speech, um, scholarship, which is not driven by ideological agendas, and to promote these values on campus through a a variety of different uh, programs and forums, uh, such as speakers, uh, academic conferences, supporting student research, prizes for students who have contributed to the ideals of freedom of Western civilization, and a kind of um, meeting ground for like-minded faculty who are interested in promoting these ideals. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the center? So how did it come about? Yeah, well, I'll make this very brief. In 2004, Rebecca Chop was president of Colgate University, and it was her ideal, which I think was really... I'm very grateful for it, that faculty should have an opportunity to create centers and institutes, um, which are funded by the university through the Office of Advancement and Development, and would add a dimension to the university which did not exist before, which is sort of a professional activity for the faculty beyond teaching and scholarship, uh, to broaden the intellectual community, to make it a more lively and interesting campus. 
uh, which which we know are isolated up here and and lots of times it's difficult to bring people to campus and and so the idea was that something could be added to the intellectual vibrancy of Colgate by creating centers and institutes so we got together with some donors and and people who are interested in broadening the base of discussion uh, who contributed to the first um, operating budgets that we had. And we started uh, bringing in speakers and promoting academic conferences. Uh, and it has grown from there, from a kind of a mom-and-pop operation in 2004 to 2010, to something much bigger. And now we're in the position of establishing what we like to call institutional permanence, which means the center now has permission to raise an endowment of $5 million dollars, and we have a set of bylaws and governance rules, which I think will guide us in the future. Hmm. Well, that is good segue into governance. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, I saw online that the center um, has an academic advisory board and an external advisory board that includes alumni, parents, um, and friends of the university. Um, Carolyn, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the oversight of the center and how that all works. Sure. So... As Bob just explained, we got our uh, governance structure in place uh, quite recently, I would say. Just with the growth of the center, it turned out to be rather necessary to kind of think about how it fit in with the other centers and institutes on campus and um, to try to achieve some sort of parity or, or um, similarity in structure uh, across the board. So our academic advisory board is comprised of professors who are from different faculty and different departments. It's not just, uh, you know, political science and classics, but we are reaching an array, a range of professors in different uh, divisions and departments. So the external advisory board consists of alums uh, who are very enthusiastic about the direction of Colgate, the direction of the center in particular, and want to find a way to stay engaged with the topics and issues of the themes that Bob so uh, helpfully encapsulated in the introduction to this discussion. And we also have invited a few from outside the alumni base, such as the lawyer and professor Jonathan Turley, who's, uh, who was actually a guest of ours in October, just before the pan, uh, just before the pandemic, I think, and it was during the pandemic. Um, it's all the time of blurs together now. <laughs> We've been at it so long, it's a new era. Um, so we had Jonathan Turley come in from uh, George Washington University, we also have a Judge Jose Cabranes, who's particularly interested in, in education and academic issues. So these two, again, they're, they're not, uh, they serve an advisory function together with the alumni who are in this group. And we meet regularly. We discuss the things that Bob and I and our faculty have been bringing to the table at Colgate. Uh, we think about suggestions of new projects we might want to do in the future. And we also get from them a nice um, kind of understanding of where the uh, the rest of the Colgate community might be sitting on some of the things we're interested in. I see. And Professor Cranach, how how is the center funded currently? I know you said you're raising money for an endowment, but um, I guess where does the funding come from right now? The funding comes almost exclusively from the Colgate Advancement Office, formerly called the Development of Office Development Office. Um, in which we work very closely with uh, a number of people there, like Andrew Coddington and Carl Klaus. And they basically reach out to Colgate alums who are concerned about the state of academic freedom and freedom of speech and the vitality of the liberal arts education in an age in which it's 
being challenged by many different forces in society. Um, and so we get grants, you know, I don't, grants or gifts from people as small as $100 to $50,000 or $100,000. Um, and it's been going on for a number of years. And the goal right now is to reach $5 million in the next three years. And we're at about $2 million. Oh, wow. And it's almost exclusively from Colgate people who are dedicated Many of them are my former students uh, who, who uh, I'm very touched by their loyalty both to me and to the center and to Colgate who have helped us do this. Professor Guile, how did you get involved with the center and uh, what is exciting to you about its mission and its work? It's a good question that you're asking about how I got involved in the center because by nature I'm not a joiner. And so I was quite interested when Professor Cranach approached me some years ago to lead a forum on Western art and culture as part of the, uh, the slate of topics or themes that the center uh, is, is um, uh, representing, if you will. This is not somehow separate from or a corrective to an academic department or program that already exists. It's basically, as he explained earlier, a forum for bringing in speakers, creating conferences, so on and so forth. And I have a lot of interests in cultural preservation, heritage conservation, things that stem from cultural destruction in times of war. For example, my own research deals in mainly Polish arts and architecture and Eastern European problems. So the forum provided a really nice opportunity for me to explore some of those things in a little bit of a different way beyond the classrooms. I really appreciated that. If I were to go back a little further, I'd have to say I think about my my education at Berkeley, my undergraduate education, where I was a double studio arts major and art history major. And it struck me at that time as I was practicing painting that in order to really be an artist, in my view, uh, at that time in the current moment, you have to you have to understand the traditions that you come from. Whether you embrace those things or not, you know, whether you're embracing a tradition or rejecting it, you should at least at least have the humility to know that you're standing on the shoulders of giants and then and then figure out what you want to do with that, what direction you want to go in. And the climate at Berkeley was an interesting one. It was this was the early 90s and it was a time of growing um, illiberalism, I should say. And the notion that, well, you know, we'll tolerate views as long as you agree with us, that kind of thing that we're hearing more and more these days was already in the air. And I became maybe alert to some of the problems of free speech and academic freedom then when I worked for a political science professor, Anthony James Greger. And I, I really, with this and, and my growing interests at the time in Eastern Europe and, and totalitarianism and the consequences of that, I realized that these things can happen again. I wanted to understand the origins of why they happen, what allows human beings to kind of take up staunch perspectives and attitudes that create this kind of spiral of illiberalism and the kind of thing that we've even been seeing more recently. And I felt that the center was a place, it was a unique place on campus where you could actually probe these questions and explore the issues in a way that truly granted you 
um, the opportunity to do that from a variety of perspectives. I think that the problem in academia in general these days is that there is an increasing but not new intolerance for attitudes that are maybe a little more right of center um, or not orthodox, if you will, to use that word in a blanket way. I, re- I am oversimplifying a little bit just for the sake of, the, of this conversation. But I think that one thing the center provides that is important is an opportunity to debate and discuss issues, not from one perspective, but multiple perspectives. But also it presents opportunities to debate and discuss issues from less often represented perspectives, which is another matter. And I think without that, a university can really slide into a place of a kind of complacency, an intellectual complacency. I think Colgate generally is a place where most people get along pretty well. Um, And I think people respect one another's aims and goals in their academic endeavors. And we have all manner of speakers and programs and forums that... um, that, you know, they don't all agree with one another, and not every view is always represented at every given time, correct? But um, I think, nonetheless, without something like what we're trying to do, it's very easy to kind of just ignore it or put it aside and sort of assume that, well, maybe this intellectual minority doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, you know, I say this in a tone of optimism and collegiality. I think that we're, we're, we have been reminding people, I think, that these things do matter. And I think the reception has been quite positive, to be honest. You know, you talked about your involvement, uh, Carolyn, and I'm curious, it's not just uh, Carolyn and Bob running the center, right? It's, well, you're both co-directors, but right. there are a number of faculty involved, right? Um, do they mostly come from political science and the classics, or do they span a wide range of disciplines? Well, we have about a dozen faculty who are actively involved, and they do come from all departments around the university. And, for example, I'm in political science, and I teach political theory and political philosophy, and I'm also interested in religion and politics. But I, I mainly am focused on the issues of political theory and the American founding and the Western ideals of freedom and virtue. Carolyn is from art and art history, from the humanities, and she brings a whole new dimension to this, uh, to the center because from our title, you can see we have these two big words, freedom and Western civilization. And Western civilization is broader than just the political ideals of Western civilization. Um, there's also art and uh, <clears throat> poetry and philosophy that go back thousands of years. And uh, Carolyn brings that dimension to it. We have forum directors. Uh, Chad Sparber is in the economics department, and he runs the uh, forum on economic freedom. We have a forum on classical studies. Uh, Robert Garland recently retired, but we're hoping to bring in new people from the classics department to take his place. We have my colleague, Nina Moore, who directs the Forum on Race and Public Policy. Uh, My colleague in the Political Science Department, Professor Brubaker, who does the Forum on Constitutional Studies. And uh, newly joining us is Professor Kepnes from the Religion Department, who will be uh, directing the Forum on Jewish Theology. 
and then two colleagues from the philosophy department, Professors Dudrick and Jacob Klein, who direct the Forum on Philosophy and Religion. So except for the sciences, and we've been trying to recruit people from the sciences who also share some of our interests in the challenge even in scientific research today by ideological conformity or taboo subjects or things you're not allowed to talk about because they're too controversial pertaining to race or gender or just the nature of scientific objectivity. Uh, we're hoping to bring more people in from the sciences, but that's been a little bit more difficult in recruiting them. But what our goal is to really bring in faculty from all parts of the university who share this concern of ours about the growing ideological intolerance and ideological demands of ideological conformity and the preservation of the ideals of liberal arts education and the pursuit of the true, the beautiful, and the good. And I think we have 12 active members and I'd say at least 30 very sympathetic people around campus. All right. Before I jump into the next question, I will say uh, you mentioned uh, Professor Robert Garland uh, as being part of the center in the past and now yes. he's retired. Um, for those listening – I forgot if, to mention the Nakamovskis. Excuse me. Sure. Alice uh, and, and Sasha Nakamovsky who have been great contributors. And she's in Russian and Jewish studies and Sasha was com computer science but he has a very strong interest in politics. Did I leave anyone else out? I want to make sure I mention all the key players. I think you've covered it. Okay. <laughs> the uh, reason I mentioned Robert I'll Garland bring, is just yeah, go ahead. for folks listening, um, he's recorded two episodes of the podcast. So uh, if you're interested yes. in hearing anything uh, from Professor He's a wonderful Garland, talker. Yes. He did an episode on uh, Plagues of the Ancient World. Yes. And he did uh, another one on um, basically surviving uh, in the ancient world, um, non-plague related. <laughs> um, so uh, – can you tell us a little bit? I know one of the hallmarks of the center is uh, Constitution Day uh, celebration. Um, Bob, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why the center celebrates Constitution Day and how it has um, how it has done that in the past. Right. So Constitution Day is actually a federally mandated mandated holiday on September the seventeenth, which recognizes the official signing of the draft of the Constitution in seventeen eighty seven. And every school which receives federal funds is required to do something to educate people about the Constitution. So this was a natural, a natural opportunity for us to contribute to the campus by fulfilling this actually legal obligation. So for the last 10 or 15 years, we have been doing a debate called the Constitution Day Debate uh, in which we have taken up fundamental constitutional questions uh, recently, we had a debate about whether or not Roe v. Wade should be overturned, and we have a speaker on the right and a speaker on the left to discuss uh, the interpretation and application of the Constitution to that very controversial issue. Uh, we've also discussed things like the constitutional status of immigration and had debates about that. Um, constitutional jurisprudence, we had a wonderful Constitution debate about assessing uh, Antonin Scalia's doctrine of originalism, which is a a way of interpreting the Constitution. And so every year, my colleague, Professor Brubaker, and I basically sit down and say, what's a great topic to do? Um, we also did the debate about slavery in the Constitution uh, last year. And um, so it's an opportunity to kind of make the center officially responsible for this important legal obligation that every federally funded educational institution has 
And I, I think they've been wonderful. I mean, we draw in a good audience. Um, we show the merits of a genuine debate using a, a sort of stylized format of giving a presentation and then debating back and forth and then opening up to, to questions from the audience and then usually followed by a dinner with students and faculty in which we continue the discussion. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't bring in just speakers that are uh, – when, when you have two sides, uh, both sides are strongly represented. I remember the Roe debate. You had uh, a lawyer who had argued in front of the Supreme Court in favor of Roe, right? right. Catherine so, Colbert. That's yeah, it. Yeah. She was lead counsel for the plaintiff in case of Planned Parenthood. Parenthood versus Casey. Yeah, thank you. And we had Melissa Muscala opposite her, who was uh, is an assistant professor of um, philosophy at Catholic University of America. And that was a fantastic debate because one of the things the students said afterward uh, was, you know, I had never heard the two sides presented in quite these ways. And I'm of one side. And now I'm actually understanding the other for the first time in a new way. So I, I was really happy about that. That was a, a great example yeah. of one of these events that I mean it's surprising how how rare actually the debate format is used in university events in which you get a strong and recognized proponent of both sides mm -hmm. or three sides if there's three sides of an issue um, to sort of in a civilized and serious way present their ideas and and have a, a kind of genuine clash of ideas and then the audience responds to it um, and we don't do everything in the debate format, but Constitution Day is always a Constitution debate. I guess that's also a good segue into the next question where uh, can each of you share some of the most exciting speakers that you've brought to campus or if there are any standouts that, uh, that come to mind that you enjoyed the most? Well, we could start with big names. And those are always exciting. Like when we were about General David Petraeus here for Family Weekend, I think it was three years ago. And he talked about his experience as being um, commander of forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan for a certain period and gave his overall view of the strategic military situation of America. And I think that was quite impressive and exciting. But we've also had people – it's kind of – and Carolyn can probably bring in – her, her Monuments Men um, conference or people like who are less well-known like Jonathan Turley, who is a, a – she mentioned a little bit earlier, a George Washington University Law School professor who has become very, very concerned about issues of academic and freedom of speech. And he's, he's somewhat well-known but not – he's not a household name in the way that a famous general is. And he gave a very powerful – presentation on the history of anti-free speech movements in this country. Um, and then I'm, I'm speaking only recently because we've been in existence since 2004, which is means we're now in our 18th year, 17th or 18th year. Um, but I'm speaking recently, Barry Weiss, who was um, at the New York Times, and she re recently left the New York Times and has become a kind of an independent... Um, Opinion maker, editorialist who's sounding the alarm about the limitations and intolerance on freedom of speech and academic. The title of her talk was uh, Freedom of Thought in the Newsroom, the story of Barry Weiss at the New York Times. And I thought she was quite powerful, interviewed by my colleague uh, Nina Moore. Do you want to comment yeah, on yours? Yeah, I would yours? say I, Barry Weiss for me was a great uh, guest because I, I've sort of been following what's happened with her and where her career has taken her. And 
uh, she and others were quite interested in have started this foundation against intolerance and racism, um, which has been kind of a counterpoint to some of the, maybe what John McWhorter would call the third wave anti-racism. And John McWhorter is actually part of that, and we're hoping to bring him here in the near future as well. So Barry's story has been of interest because you think of you know, where we get our news sources from and what news should be. And I remember years ago asking students, you know, where do you get your news from? This is maybe 10 years ago. And they'd say, oh, Facebook. And I was horrified. I thought, wait, what about the major news outlets? You know, I mean, but now, you know, you can't really say you get your source from the major news outlets anymore with a straight face because we can't really count on those things for the sort of objectivity and analysis that maybe we would associate them with in the era in which I grew up, for example. So Barry Weiss was uh, very instructive, and um, we hope to bring her back as well. We had, as Bob um, mentioned, Robert Edsel, who was the best-selling author of the book The Monuments Men. He produced the film The Monuments Men. He also produced The Rape of Europa, which is based on the book by Lynn Lin Nichols. Um, and th uh, with that, I had also organized a conference together with my colleague Michael Dante on preserving cultural heritage in times of conflict. So we brought in... 10 or 12 speakers from an array of disciplines. So it's maybe not one big name, but a group of people who came together, lawyers, FBI agents, archaeologists, art historians, uh, who gave presentations on the state of affairs in different uh, aspects of cultural heritage protection, uh, focusing largely on the illicit trafficking of antiquities and art objects. And then we had respondents from among the Colgate faculty. So I'd like to see more of those kinds of things as well, in addition to the debate formats that um, Professor Cranach is talking about. The center awards several students with special academic awards each year. Can you tell us a little bit about the Richard Stone uh, Class of 81 Civic Freedom Awards and the James Madison Fellowships? How are those awarded and uh, how does that – how do the fellowships operate? Okay. So there's two things here. One is awards and prizes, the Richard Stone award and prizes, which we give to two or three outstanding seniors who have made a contribution to promoting the ideals of freedom in Western civilization during their undergraduate careers. So um, last spring, help me, um, Hannah Kloster was her name? Hannah Kloster. Hannah Kloster, who was a, uh, a classics major and uh, participated in an archaeological project, I believe, in Italy. Um, and was an outstanding student athlete as well. But her contribution was the study of the classics, and she's going on to get a Ph.D. at Boston University, and so she received an award. Uh, Max Waller, political science department, a straight-A student, but he stood out to us for being what I would call a truly independent thinker in an age of ideological conformity and pressure to go along with political correctness Everyone in the political science department knew Max Waller as that guy in the front row who would challenge nearly everything that you said, which is quite bold in this day and age where professors are kind of – professors have always been intimidating in different ways, but Max was that independent thinker. So we're always looking for seniors who in some way or another reflect the ideals of freedom in Western civilization, and they get a nice uh, prize of $2,500 and then a beautiful plaque that they can put up on their wall forever. 
the James Madison Summer Fellowships is something that has developed over the years. I'll speak a little bit about it, and Carolyn can add a lot to it as well, uh, in which we give uh, the $5,000 summer research stipend, which is a, a pretty reasonable, I think it was $6,000 actually last summer. Uh, it's basically their summer job to work on a serious intellectual scholarly project. And then they work together with a faculty sponsor or supervisor or mentor from June the 1st to August the 31st. And the goal is to produce a 35 or 40 page page, 45 page research paper on on their topic. So I supervised two students last summer. Carolyn can talk about her students in a moment. Uh, one was by Carson Durdell on Cicero and the end of the Roman Republic. And we basically read Cicero together and studied Roman history and why republics fall or fail, which has historical implications for today. The, the people that are talking about widely is democracy and decline and so on around the world. Uh, my other student worked on a summer research project on just war theory. Um, we award 12 of them, which is a significant number. And each of them has their own personally chosen faculty mentor who also gets a a $2,000 research kind of stipend to work with the student. And I think they produce very impressive projects. Some of them use them for their as a draft of their senior honors thesis. Some of them actually produced work which is almost publishable, meaning when they work on it again, they could produce their first scholarly article. Mm. So I think it's even a better experience than what we call the senior honors thesis because they really focus all summer. And it's usually conducted in a tutorial system way. Now we've learned about some of the virtues of Zoom. Many of us don't like Zoom, but one of the things you can do is work with a student once a week or twice a week over Zoom, and they may be living in another part of the country. Uh, they don't have to be on campus anymore, and that's worked out very nicely. So about a dozen is quite, I think, a significant contribution to the scholarly development maturity of our students. You want to comment yeah, on I would add students? to that that um, not only have we grown the program to this 12 number, perhaps to reach 13. Uh, but also we advertise this with the larger array. Um, Karen Belanger advertises the opportunities through the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Research. And right. that means that uh, faculty sponsors are encouraged to work with students from all across the campus. And we've been very happy to support projects that are uh, supervised by faculty who are not necessarily associated or affiliated with the, the center per se. Uh, some of my students have worked on interesting things uh, such as, um, well, one of them, Peter LaRue, who just graduated actually worked on the 9-11 memorial, uh, the reflecting absence and um, in New York and had a great opportunity to go down to the memorial site, visit it, examine it firsthand and write about the competition that led to that particular solution. He's quite invested in that. Uh, Madeline Graham is a student of mine who is currently abroad in Italy in the Bologna program, the approved program. And she got very interested through my uh, early modern architecture class in domestic architecture in, in Italy, in Florence in particular. So she was looking at the idea of virtu and magnificence and economic expenditures and restraint in relation to domestic architecture created by important patrons like the Medici family, the Rucelli. So taking some of the big hits of the Renaissance and really going a little further with examining, you know, why did they build the way they did and what 
does it mean to build according to a particular moral code? So she examined that. So we really do have an array of subjects. And Mm -hmm. as Bob said, uh, the students get a chance to focus all summer long, and we meet with them regularly and talk about their drafts and uh, bring them hopefully to a new level of research experience and understanding. It's also brought a lot of faculty who are not immediately involved with the operations of the center to be affiliated with the center, associated with the center, and to and to show them that there is, I, I wanted to add this very important point, that there's institutional support, meaning funding, approval by legitimate programs on campus, institutional support for promoting the ideals of freedom and Western civilization in scholarship with students that is systematic, right? Because the point of having a center in an institute is that it's not enough just to root for certain causes and to encourage people to do things. You need money and funding. You need organization. You need a structure for programming. You need a way of bringing students together in some sort of systematic way. That's the whole point of having a center and or an institute. It's an organization. It's a, it's a structure, um, and if you don't have that, you can have a lot of high-minded intentions, but it doesn't necessarily work out in the real world. And so I think that's the great value of having a center in an institute. The center's website has a paragraph that reads, First and foremost, for the Center of Freedom and Western Civilization is the ideal of a classical liberal arts education. An education worthy of a free citizen and a free mind that is based on a rigorous and unflinching encounter with the great books of the Western tradition. We believe that these books contain timeless wisdom about the good life and the nature of man and reality, and they should be at the core of a liberal arts education. What are those books? Well, to a certain degree, everyone kind of knows who where they are. I mean, classical political thought is Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. Okay. Then there are the great medieval thinkers, Maimonides in the Jewish tradition and Thomas Aquinas in the Christian tradition. Many of the great Renaissance thinkers, which Carolyn studies in her uh, Renaissance art and culture works. Uh, the Enlightenment, Kant and Locke and, and Descartes. Don't forget Burke. And, and and then the conservative reaction to the Enlightenment, Edmund Burke. Uh, I had a student who did a great summer project on that. Actually, are there two Edmund Burks? Because there's two sides to Edmund Burke, a liberal side and a conservative side. Mm-hmm. And then what is sort of uh, kind of the late modernity, late modern people who are really criticizing the whole tradition. I mean, part of what we try to show is that Western civilization, I think people know know this, has is not a, a monolithic. It, it has many, many elements to it, several of which are in conflict or in tension with each other. And, and in Western civilization, there is a critique of Western civilization, especially coming in late modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would be philosophers like Nietzsche and Heidegger who basically kind of criticized the whole tradition for being uh, too metaphysical. Anyway... So those are sort of the philosophical works, right? But I'm sure Carolyn can add some of the works from um, art and poetry and so on uh, that are part of it. Would you? Well, these are all intertwined. I mean, I would also say, you know, we can't forget epics like the the epic tradition, the Homeric tradition, the Iliad, the Odyssey. Every time I teach uh, in Core 151, uh, we read the whole Iliad, and it's a real workout for the students, and they really get a lot out of it because they start to see 
um, the ways in which this this text is it speaks to us still from the treatment of Hector's corpse and the horror that that induces to uh, the notion of caring about your ancestors and wanting to maybe live up to a certain standard that you that you have for yourself. Uh, so, you know, Paradise Lost is another one I think everyone should should be reading. But the other thing is that to read these texts, you kind of have to keep reading them all. And I know that there's a lot of debate, of course, around what the canon is, what the great books should be. And, you know, I, I think canons are flexible. They, they're not ossified. They shouldn't be necessarily. Um, but if you, if you gut them and you stop reading the texts that, that are in conversation with one another, let's say Homer, Virgil, Dante, Milton, you can't really read Milton without reading those other texts. And if you kind of throw them out in the name of just wanting something new or getting beyond traditions or quote-unquote old stuff, you deprive students, I think, of an opportunity to really encounter what is so meaningful and and, and um, important about those texts. So, you know, we, it, yes, there are specific texts we can name, but it's also an idea of how texts fit together, how works of art, texts, and monuments might comprise other larger traditions, right? So... Yeah, I'd like to add something to that that's relevant to the discussion that just took place at Colgate, which is the core curriculum in which it is the feeling of many of the people who are affiliated with the center that classical liberal arts education is on the decline or is even dying out in many universities. Um, some universities have gotten rid of their classics departments because they feel that classics is somehow biased. I even read that maybe Oxford was considering getting rid of Shakespeare. Um, it's almost unthinkable. But I think there's a feeling of the people who are closely affiliated with the center that classical liberal arts education needs defending in today's world either against ideological attacks on it, which we can get to in a moment, um, or just like Carolyn mentioned, the desire for novelty without recognizing that novelty does grow out of a tradition. And that if you put that aside, there's really not a lot of substance left to what we might call liberal arts education. And the great debates about God, meaning, justice, all of those things are, are, are going to be much more superficial if we lose this ideal of classical liberal arts education. So I think that's a very, very important part of the mission of the center. If, if formally the core revision eventually does away with this, one of our goals might be to create a great book certificate or even a, um, which, or a core text certificate, which some universities have created so that students who want to study these books will have a place to go. And I, I think that's going to be very important in the future. There are some elements of the far right that have embraced the classics as a stalwart, upholding ancient Greeks and Romans as the originators of, quote, white culture. Yeah. What can supporters of the classics do to prevent the discipline from being co-opted from, I guess, extreme groups? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question because in its wording, 
not to be critical of the question you can as be such. Critical. It's fine. Well, <laughs> it's sort of is presuming that we're going to be in a reactive mode every time some ball comes in this direction from that kind of court. I feel like, you know, you can lose a lot of precious time engaging the crazies out there, right? And I don't think that, um, I mean, I don't think that every idea necessarily has equal credence, okay? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, just because Hitler adopted classicism as a, as a, as a aesthetic mode, does that mean we stop using ionic columns and, and so forth? Every idea is capable of being misused and misinterpreted. Let's not forget that the great ideal of human rights or the rights of man was taken over by the French Revolution and led to the guillotine and the reign of terror in which 10,000 people were executed. And they, are you going to get rid of human rights and the rights of man because the Jacobin radicals of the French Revolution took that ideal and used it as a form of, of, of genocide or class warfare? So Likewise, the classical expression ideal. in architecture, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to— Every religion has been used for inquisitions and so on. That doesn't mean you get rid of the good parts. And Cornell West, West recently vote, wrote a very interesting article defending Western civilization. So we must distinguish between Western civilization and Western crimes mm. because the bad parts are not necessarily representative of the good parts. But every tradition and every ideal— Take the idea of equality, which is so popular among intellectuals today. Well, in the extreme form, that leads to communism, and communism led to totalitarianism, which led to the death of millions of people in, in Stalin's Russia or in Mao's China. And so are you going to get rid of the ideal of equality? Coming back to Carolyn's comment, no, you, 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 you interpret it correctly or you apply it correctly. And the other thing I would say is, the, the cure, the antidote to this co-optation of, of, let us say, the classics is to actually read them and you will discover if you read Plato, it has really nothing to do with race. It has to do with the philosophical life as modeled by Socrates, which was a critical – which was a, an approach to thinking which was highly critical of all established views and opinions and basically argued for moderation in politics. So the reply to is you actually have to read and study the books and interpret them honestly. And in that way, you can distinguish between ideological distortions and the genuine message. I mean, or take Christianity, right? I mean, the message of Christ is love one another. But that doesn't mean that people couldn't use it for inquisitions and crusades. You have to separate the distortions from what is actually taught. That's well said. And I would just add, too, that when we're being asked this question and thinking our way through an answer, I mean, there's always looming in the background the issue of free speech and academic freedom. So to play the devil's advocate, someone might say, well, you know, aren't, aren't all views um, welcome or, you know, free to be expressed? And, you know, you don't want to get into a game of censorship, which is, I think, happening right now. I think we've been witnessing Ill growing illiberalism on shall we simplify and say both sides? While I would say I, I would not welcome those views of the, the co-optation of the classics by, you know, white supremacists or something. I, I'm, I'm not saying that I want those views at my table. Um, at the same time, let someone reveal who they are and what they think through their speech, and then you can decide where you stand on that. I, I think it's an interesting question because you can you can talk about a discipline-specific problem, and Bob has just addressed anecdotally some really interesting cases of that. 
Um, but I think it's a bigger question of illiberalism and and what is going on, the dangers of, of that, that any political side is capable of. The, the, the uses of intolerance in order to gain power, I think these are, this is a very problematic thing that we're, we're all dealing with right now. Does the center ever partner with other organizations on campus to bring speakers um, or, you know, to plan special events? Or is it something that the center just basically does on its own? Well, that's an interesting question. We try as much as possible to do outreach to people who wish to engage us, either by supporting our activities or having healthy debates. One of the most interesting that recently took place was uh, my colleague uh, David Dudrick in the philosophy department, who had a great debate in Donovan's pub about abortion with uh, women's studies and um, other faculty in the department who didn't agree with him. And I thought that was a pretty successful attempt uh, to try to bring together the pro-life and the pro-choice view. Mm-hmm. I'll have to say it's not easy to do uh, because we are all a little bit in our tunnels or kind of bubbles. Our goal is to engage anyone who will talk to us. <laughs> and, and outreach is certainly part of our mission. I think we've been most successful um, in having some debates and also in these James Madison Summer Fellowships in, in reaching out to. But it's not an easy thing to do to bring different parts of the university together on these things. And lots of times people, they sort of feel that it's a little bit hard to – that certain things they just don't want to be involved too much in public controversy. And uh, that's very regrettable. Our hope is to do better at outreach. Do you have anything lined up in terms of uh, more speakers this year? Of course, the year is rapidly coming to a close. But I guess well, this... we've, we've had a very busy fall. Yeah, from Constitution Day to uh, we just had a great lecture on Dante. Um, <clears throat> in the spring, we have planned. Something for Black History Month, my colleague Nina Moore, who uh, directs the Forum on Race and Public Policy, will be inviting um, Jonathan, uh, John McCordor and Glenn Lowry, who are, you might say, sort of black conservatives, who uh, will challenge some of the mainstream thinking about uh, the role of race. I know Carolyn is working on something on architectural preservation, which you can speak about. And I'm working on something uh, with a, uh, a recently fairly well-known author named Vivek Ramaswamy who has written a book on woke capitalism, the way in which corporations are now being influenced to make themselves not only more ideologically sort of affiliated with progressive thought. And um, his claim is that it's a, a sort of a a fabrication which corporations are doing to protect themselves, almost like uh, uh, protection money that was used to be paid to the mafia. He, um, he kind of interprets it that way. You want to talk about your... Well, sure. I mean, I think one of the things I'm going to be doing this spring is in connection with a uh, extended study program that I'll be leading in Krakow, Poland, with Professor Ben Stahlberg, who's in Religion and Jewish Studies, and so I'm thinking about a couple of events dealing with uh, restitution of uh, Jewish properties. I'm thinking about a colleague of mine, Michael Basler. I'd like him to come in. 
Uh, I'm also thinking about a case of a Jewish mortuary chapel in Hartford, Connecticut, that's about to be knocked down, and uh, some debates about that that our, our local colleague, Sam Gruber, in Syracuse has just written about. And so some of those issues that we'll be encountering in Poland itself when we go there, I, I'll be organizing a couple of events around that, All right. among you, other things. You've made it to question 13. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, How's that possible? <laughs> <laughs> if you had the opportunity to bring anyone to campus as a very special speaker on behalf of the Center for Freedom and Western Civilization, who would it be and why? And I think I'll give each of you a chance to respond here. You can each pick a, a speaker. I would like to bring back Robert Zimmer, who was the president of the University of Chicago. And we, we invited him about, I think it was almost four years ago, to campus. And that really began a process at Colgate of making people aware that there was something called the Chicago Principles on Academic Freedom and Freedom of Speech, which has touched a lot of campuses. And, and President Robert Zimmer was really the inspiration from that. And I'm proud to say that the center brought him here. And it led to the formation at Colgate of a task force on academic freedom, in which we created our own Colgate Principles. We sometimes like to call them the Colgate Chicago Principles, um, giving credit to their origination, but also our version of it. And I think that has had a significant positive impact. And I would like to bring him back here to assess the, the successes and the setbacks that the academic freedom principles, which really, as I said, he inspired and which we have had here, to kind of reassess the whole situation and how pes and hear how pessimistic or optimistic he might be about the future of liberal arts education and academic freedom. I think that was a significant watershed event at Colgate. And we're still talking about it and arguing about it and trying to apply these principles. But I think we need to continuously renew and assess our successes and failures in this regard. So I would like to bring him back and kind of just have a discussion in our Colgate community about what we have learned and what we have not learned from him. In fact, I was thinking about him in relation to maybe not one single guest, but a kind of getting together of uh, representatives from similar centers and institutes to talk precisely yeah, about talk this about issue. Mm -hmm. And so we actually are on the exact same page about this. And um, this is, I think this is one of the goals that we're trying to reach for for the next year or so. Ooh, yeah. I'll be on the lookout for it. Well, I would like to add to what Carolyn said, and it's a good note to end, is that the Center for Freedom and Western Civilization is one of about 30 or 40 institutes and centers around the country, which different universities have created. More, it's more or less come up from the faculty and from the alumni and uh, the, the model one is at Princeton, which was created by a colleague, Robert George, called the Ma James Madison Center for American Ideals and Institute. And we regard that as sort of the, the ideal. He has a, a, a really a broad alumni base and a, and a very large budget and has significant influence. But there are these centers here at Colgate, at Hamilton College, there's the Alexander Hamilton Institute. At Dartmouth, <clears throat> there's an institute, the Daniel Webster Institute. At, at 
forum, uh, forum in university. There's the Tocqueville Forum at the University of Colorado. There's What's the, the name of it? The, the Benson, uh, Benson Institute. Center. The Benson Center for the Western Abigail, Civilization. Uh, Abigail Adams Abigail Institute. Adam. There's many of these. Yeah, so people um, should realize that, I hate to put it this way, but there's a kind of a, a resistance center or institute at many of our universities because of a felt need to provide institutional support for people who are pushing back against the ideological intolerance of our contemporary universities and the decline of liberal arts education and the de decline of genuine and legitimate debate. And so we are just one of about 30 or 40, and Carolyn and I have talked about, and I've gone to several of these, um, where representatives from around the country, anywhere between 15 and 20, have gotten together and just share ideas about how you build these organizations because each one is different at every university. At Hamilton College, they're a little bit more independent of the school itself because they faced hostility. We have worked very carefully to be part of Colgate rather than to be in opposition to Colgate. Um, and there's a lot to be learned from our colleagues in these, but, but people should be aware that the center is one of about I'd say 40. 30 or 40, yeah. 30 or 40 that are all kind of trying to do the same thing and are facing challenges and are making some progress but also are finding some difficulties and we'd like to share ideas and strategies with them. That was 13. Thank you, Professor Kranak and Professor Guile for joining the program. Be sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and as always – Listeners with questions about this episode or any of our past episodes are welcome to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number, and I'll be happy to get back to you with some answers. Be well, and as always, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.